This episode was made possible by our top-tier Patreon supporters, Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support the show from as little as £1 a month, go to patreon.com and look for Demystified by Ashley Styles. And now, back to the regularly scheduled programming. August 8th, 1969. Los Angeles, California. Sharon Tate is at home in the Hollywood Hills with four others. Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojtek Frykowski, and Stephen Parent. She's heavily pregnant, eight and a half months along, with the child of her husband, famed film director Roman Polanski. Polanski would later earn his own infamy, but Tate, sadly, is known for a little more than just her short-lived acting career. In fact, if you know her name, then you probably know where this is going. Sharon Tate and the others at that house were all found murdered, stabbed and shot to death at 10050 CLO Drive. The word pig was written in their blood on the walls. Why was this? None of those murdered that night, nor the two killed the following night by the same group, were notably affiliated with the police, for whom pig was and is a common insult. But it all goes back to 1934. A young boy is born in Cincinnati, Ohio, a long way from LA. The child, originally called, I kid you not, No Name Maddox, is later called Charles. Charles Maddox was born into a home that could only be described as broken. His parentage was questionable, and the two of whom were suspected to be his parents were at odds with each other. His mother was a frequent drinker, and not infrequently in prison. He started acting out. At the age of nine, according to him, he set his school on fire. He was sent to a reform school where the staff and other students beat him repeatedly. When he couldn't defend himself, he used a tactic he called the insane game. He would pretend to have violent fits of madness to get them to leave him alone. He ran away from school 18 times and was eventually given a psychiatric evaluation. The results were that he was above average in terms of his intelligence, despite being apparently illiterate, but was aggressively antisocial. He went in and out of prisons, assaulting people here, stealing cars there. Despite a clear desire to draw attention to himself, complemented by taking guitar lessons apparently, Charles Maddox spent nearly half of his life behind bars by the time he was released in 1967. After he was released from prison, he moved to San Francisco. He made a living, if you could call it that, by begging, but ended up meeting a woman working at the University of California at Berkeley. Through his charisma, he ended up living in her house with, apparently, 18 other women. It was now that Charlie had established himself as a guru. 1967 was the summer of love, and Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco was the epicenter of hippie spirituality. Operating now under the name Charles Manson, he established the Manson family on the basis of a neo-Christian message. He suggested he was a reincarnation of Jesus, his followers were his disciples, and the establishment were the Romans. Manson apparently came from this. His alias, Charles Willis Manson, was a play on words that he took great pleasure in reciting to people. Charles Will is man's son. Get it? For a while, Manson and his family roamed around in an old school bus as vagrants, travelling as far north as Washington State. The librarian he'd met in Berkeley, Mary Brunner, became pregnant by him and gave him a son. He made himself something of an enigma. He was always trying to manipulate people, and many noticed this, but many didn't. And even some of those who'd begun as his skeptics were won over by his magnetic personality. 
Make no mistake, though, appearances were deceiving. He set his family up at an old Western film set, the Spahn Ranch, and kept them there for free by coercing his female followers to have sex with the nearly blind 80-year-old owner of the ranch. At this ranch, Manson recruited Charles Watson, nicknamed Tex for his origin and accent. Tex would later be the linchpin in the murders to come. Manson was expanding the operation to ranches in the Death Valley area when he heard something that would change everything. The White Album, properly known as The Beatles. The ninth studio album by what was already a world-shatteringly famous band hit different to Manson, and he became obsessed with them. He had been a little obsessed to an extent before that. When he was learning guitar in prison, he bragged that one day he would be more famous than The Beatles. But Manson began to scan each and every word for hidden meaning, hidden messages from these spiritually enlightened supermen. Indeed, Manson thought he'd found something incredible. The White Album was directed specifically at him and his family, a secret group who were destined to rule the world. Manson called this idea Helter Skelter after the song, and it went like this. There would soon be a race war in the United States between blacks and whites. When that happened, the family would need to lay low in their ranches, hidden away. They were white, and the blacks would win the race war due to their physical strength. When they did, however, their lack of intelligence would lead them to ruin, and Manson and the family would emerge and be accepted as the natural rulers of the new world. If that sounds insane and racist, well it is. I suppose that's what Charles Manson was, insane and racist. What's the connection to pigs? Well, there's a song called Piggies on the album. In spite of how crazy this all is, it doesn't seem like it would induce people to actually murder other people, does it? Well, its craziness was exactly what precipitated that. Manson realized that their musical album, which was to trigger the apocalypse that they were making, was taking longer than expected, and they'd need to escalate things themselves. After all, the blacks were not as smart as they, right? So perhaps they needed to get the ball rolling for them. They started agitating. They defrauded and shot a black drug dealer. That didn't work. He'd survived, and he wasn't a member of the Black Panthers, as Manson had just assumed. They then murdered a music teacher. Manson had met him and befriended him. They thought him rich in bonds, but after failing to steal the money that he didn't have, they killed him. And in his blood, they wrote, Political Piggy. Then, the Tate-LaBianca murders. Why Sharon Tate? Well, Manson had briefly bumped into her one day. Her home, 150 Cielo Drive, used to belong to someone Manson knew, and he went there looking for them. Instead, he found the new occupants. There was no rhyme or reason to the choosing of them. Manson's instructions to his family were, I paraphrase here, go to that house where Melcher used to live. Totally destroy everyone in there, as gruesome as you can. Sharon Tate and the four that died that night were just unlucky enough to have ever met Charles Manson. That was the night of the 8th to the 9th. On the 10th, the family struck again. Leno and Rosemary LaBianca lived next door to a house that Manson and the family had once been to for a party. Manson attended personally to these murders, and they were killed, words written in their blood alluding to Helter Skelter. But initially, the police investigations ruled out a connection between the two murders. They had thought the Tate scene was a drug deal gone wrong. Manson and the family had been arrested and the ranch was raided, but as part of a separate and unrelated investigation into car thefts and chop shops. So what changed? 
Well, the Tate and LaBianca teams ended up working together when the girlfriend of a suspect in the earlier murder of the music teacher was found to have been brought in as part of the Manson family. This raised suspicions. They went back to the branches in Death Valley where the family were digging for a hole in the ground, looking for the entrance to the hidden city that they called the Bottomless Pit, where they were supposed to ride out Helter Skelter in safety. Following up leads with a motorcycle gang that the family had tried to recruit, the bikers led the police to the family once again. A testimony from a roommate of one of those involved in the killing sealed the deal, and the Manson family entered infamy. The rest of the story will save for the next chapter. Don't want to give it all away, do I? But why am I talking about the Manson family? Well, let me tell you another story that might shed some light on the relevance of that story to the stories of today. Now, this happened far more recently than I anticipated. I'd actually planned this season's topics well in advance, way back at the end of 2020. But this very much proves my point, I think. On Wednesday the 6th of January, 2021, a far-right group of seditionists stormed the US Capitol building, seeking to overturn the Democratic election results being certified and, allegedly, murder the sitting congressman and the vice president. The president himself had egged them on, saying he'd be right behind them. The gang raised a Trump flag over Congress in place of a US one, and even one user on Twitter wrote, quote, My allegiance isn't to the United States. My allegiance isn't to the US Constitution. My allegiance is to President Trump. Now, many have called Donald Trump's control over his supporters similar in nature to a group like the Manson family. Dog whistles, coded messages and seemingly innocuous statements, let's not forget the Kofifi incident, and encouraging his followers to ignore the facts of reality and simply take whatever he says as true, prima facie. Am I going too far with this analogy? Well, stick with me this season and maybe I'll change your mind. What do the murders of innocents in LA, a mass suicide in Guyana, a range war in Oregon, one of the deadliest terror attacks in Japanese history, and the toppling of the government of South Korea all have in common? Well, this season in Demystified, we look into the facts and the fiction behind cults. So, the cat's out of the bag. This season's theme is cults. Five episodes and one bonus, all addressing a different infamous cult, all linking back to a unifying theme. On today's episode, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. I will get back to the Manson family and discussing why their entry to this list is important, but since we've covered them a fair bit already, we're going to do some etymology first. It's important for this topic, not least because cults hate being called that. Cults. It's a dirty word, brings up images of robe-wearing and poison-drinking and all that nastiness. Pretty much every group that could be considered one has, at some point, denied ever being one. And that's sort of telling, no? But sometimes the labelling is political. An example of that would be the Falun Gong, a New Age spiritual movement that is definitely culty in some ways, but was labelled as such by the Chinese government, who were then proven by the UN to have been harvesting Falun Gong members' organs to serve hospitals without their consent. My point is that the label carries great power, because avoiding it, as some organisations have managed to do, means that they get to continue harming people, but going too far with it can open innocent, if weird, groups up to terrible things that they don't deserve. 
as like pyramid schemes. Those that are and avoid the label go on to defraud people. Those that aren't and get the label are ruined forever. The former tends to happen far more often than the latter, but the justice system is supposedly based around the idea of innocent until proven guilty. So what is a cult? Well, the word comes from the Latin cultus, to worship, and used to be used in the ancient world to describe something very different. In ancient Greece, and later in Rome, there were certain religious sects that worshipped obscure aspects of the deities of the expansive pantheons of the Hellenic and Roman world. These groups would often keep their rituals secret, or hidden, from others. Hence the Greek word mysteria, meaning hidden. Thus, we call these groups mystery cults. And they weren't anything like what we'd think of when we picture cults, not least in the modern sense. Sure, they had robes and chanting. If you, like I, are a fan of the oft-referenced and problematic author H.P. Lovecraft, it fits the bill pretty nicely for a cult, doesn't it? But their goals were very different. Whilst today we think of cults as actively wanting to accrue power and influence and spread their message, mystery cults wanted the opposite, to keep their secrets to themselves. This was the point of the secrecy. The practices of each group varied based on the aspect of the deity they worshipped. For instance, the Dionysian mysteries worshipped Dionysius, the Greek god of alcohol and fertility, by getting pissed drunk. Not just for fun, but because they believed that the intoxication of wine brought about a form of divine madness. Dionysius was also a god of madness, and this was his gift to them through alcohol. Its central tenets were the embracing of the liberation of the self, found through the releasing of social inhibitions brought on by excessive alcohol consumption. It therefore attracted outcasts, slaves, women, and non-citizen of the places that it popped up in. As their power affected the mainstream religion, their popularity grew, and the chthonic, meaning the underworld or death-related origins of Dionysius, dropped away in favour of emphasising his mystical and transcendental aspects. That's ancient history, though. All of my examples come from after the 1950s. How do we get from that one state of affairs to the other? Well, a change in societal perspective is one thing. Cult has always referred to a small, out-of-the-way religious group, but its meaning of excessive devotion to a group or its ideals gained traction from the 19th century onwards. A big part of the adoption of cult to mean religion I don't like has to do with the surge in the religious revivals of the 1940s in the United States. You see, weird and esoteric religions were very fashionable from the 1850s through to the 1930s, as we saw with things like theosophy, but a renewal of Christian religious fervour in the 40s led to fringe movements being ostracised. Not for nothing, I suppose, Christianity was set as diametrically opposed to the strange cult-like fascism of the Second World War, between Nazi obsessions, to some extent, with their weird religious mythos and fanatical worship of a charismatic leader. This is another point where the definition shifts as the studying of what we today recognise as cults formulates, the presence of the charismatic leader. Ancient mystery cults did have leaders, sure, but the veneration tended to be more towards the god of the cult. The leader was just a figurehead. Same too with the fringe religions of the 1800s, which today we would call New Age religion or new religious movements. But modern cults tend to have a single charismatic figure whose presence permeates the practices of the cult. And to figure here, we don't mean nice or pleasant or clean when we say charismatic. As per our earlier example, Donald Trump cultivates the airs of a permanently deflating stack of pancakes with all the social grace of a cantankerous skunk, but he still undeniably has charisma. Charisma, simply put, is the ability to get people to do things you want them to. They don't need to like you or find you attractive, though those things often help. But if you sway people enough, they may just say those things about you, even if it's patently not true. 
Size doesn't factor into whether something is a cult or not. One of our cults on this list for this season has up to hundreds of thousands of active members, even after all of the things that they were proven to have done. Another has merely a handful. Others no longer exist. And there's lots of types of cults. There's doomsday cults. They're the really famous ones. They're usually united around a central belief that the world will end soon, or that some radical action is required to bring about the end of the world, or take the believers to heaven, or something like that. Many of our cults this season fit that bill, though they rarely start out that way. Destructive cults tend to encourage their members to engage in destructive behaviour. Killing people, stealing, destroying things. Totalitarian control over followers in attempts by the leader to make money are often hallmarks of the destructive cult. Then there's political cults. The obvious entrant here is the one we've been talking about, but the Nazi party, the Romanian Iron Guard, and the UK's Workers' Revolutionary Party have all, to some extent, been labelled as cult-like in their operations. Racist cults specify that as their main oeuvre. The KKK stand out that way, as do the groups that would later seep into German and Austrian Nazi parties. The lynchings treated as a form of human sacrifice, argues historian and sociologist Orlando Patterson. Terrorists are also labelled as cults. Al-Qaeda, the Shining Path, the Tamil Tigers, even ISIS, especially ISIS. They were a doomsday cult who predicted that their heinous actions would precipitate the end of the world. Turns out they were wrong about that as well. But the definition and specification is very important, because as I mentioned before, people generally don't like being called cultists. After the events we'll cover throughout this season, the word carries very serious connotations. But it can also be used to oppress people. In one of these stories, that was actually a big part of the debate as to whether or not the group should be called a cult, with the group in question arguing that them being labelled as that created a self-fulfilling prophecy that forced them to act like a cult. So who counts as a cult and who doesn't? It's hard to say. With each of these examples, we'll be deciding on a case-by-case -case basis. Spoiler alert, I would consider all of the ones we're covering to be cults, hence their presence on this list. But it's worth considering nonetheless. Now, back to Charles Manson and the Manson family. The story you doubtless know. I'll go over the Cliff Rhodes version again, though. In 1967, Charles Manson, born Charles Maddox, formed a cult. Why he did this is a matter of debate. It almost certainly wasn't due to a genuine spiritual connection felt in the Summer of Love. He'd been reviewed by several psychiatrists in his time in prisons and institutions and was found to be ill-intelligent if self-serving, manipulating, and antisocial to an aggressive extent. But Helter Skelter does seem to have been something that Manson genuinely believed, at least insofar as he was willing to get his followers to kill for it. I've seen arguments that Helter Skelter was a smokescreen to cover for the first murder of the music teacher, Gary Allen Hinman, but I don't buy that, although there was some substantiation of this in interviews with some of the suspects. First off, the nature of the killings. They're random. They have basically nothing in common aside from the Helter Skelter references, to the extent that the police didn't even consider them to be linked. If this was to convince the police that Hinman's killer was still at large, it failed miserably. Secondly, the other things. Acquiring ranches in the desert and the use of massive diggers to try and find the bottomless pit. This was one of the things that ended up leading the police to them, as part of the auto-theft charges. Why would they do that if not in service of their horrifying and insane plan? But Manson formed the family before he discovered, I say with a legion of air quotes, Helter Skelter. What was the true motive then? To quickly run back over Helter Skelter, it was basically Manson's end of the world scenario. He saw the civil rights movement as indicative of an impending race war in the United States. 
He thought that in this war, blacks would overrun whites on the incorrect assumption that the inherent physical strength of the black people would grant them victory. He and his family were an ordained elect group, determined to rule after the war, so they had to dig in Death Valley to find a hidden underground city that was already there called the Bottomless Pit, where they could safely hide out for the war. With me so far? When the war was over, society would collapse because of the incorrect assumption that blacks were incapable of running their own societies, which we've actually disproven on one of the bonus episodes of this show, but we don't need to disprove it. Stupid, basically. He and the family would emerge and they would be welcomed by the blacks, having realised their inferiority. Now doesn't that sound like some racist nonsense? It's part of the reason why people figured that he couldn't have really believed it, that it must have been a diversion for other motives. But what would these motives be? A lust for money? Maybe, but probably not. One anecdote tells that he was criticised for his luxurious tour bus, which he then promptly gave to a random passerby on the street. So it wasn't accumulation of wealth that interested him. He could have accumulated lots of wealth, but he didn't. Could it be control? That he simply wanted to control people? Again, maybe. He did find it very easy to sway people, but his success rate wasn't 100%. Think of the biker gang that refused his overtures. And if he just wanted to accumulate control, why the public murders that would end up so thoroughly depriving him of that control? A little of column A, a little of column B? It could be that if he was just that into the idea of controlling people, he would have been willing to sacrifice it all for one big high. When he was taken to trial, Manson went on an infamous rant in which he accused American society as having produced him and his family. He saw himself as a man trying to give them purpose, and that his actions were a result of his upbringing and his hatred of mainstream American society. Now, naturally, this didn't hold water. Not that it never does, though. Of famed lawyer Clarence Darrow's most famous defences, there was the Leopold and Loeb case, arguing that two young boys who had murdered a friend did so because of their upbringing, and he succeeded in getting their sentences reduced. But the court didn't buy it. Manson's history of violent, manipulative behaviour didn't gel with the just trauma from the US prison system, which is terrifying in and of itself, don't get me wrong, but they argued that he was kind of always like that. In 1972, the death penalty was abolished in California, so Manson got life in prison. And during that time, he developed something of a new cult following. During the trial, he'd carved an X into his forehead, and in prison, he changed the X to a swastika. He was sent fan mail in prison by those who saw him as a counterculture figure. He even tried to get married in 2014-15, but some have seen this as just another manipulation attempt by Manson. He was found to be delusional, paranoid schizophrenic, delusions of grandeur with an incredibly controlling personality, but on top of that, he was denied parole because he showed nothing. No understanding of the magnitude or consequences of what he'd done, no remorse for the suffering he'd caused, the lives he'd ruined, no plans for the future. According to some who knew him, he genuinely believed he was never going to die and would just ride out his prison sentence, however long that would be. Finally, he was said to have what was described as an exceptional and callous disregard for human suffering. Basically, Charles Manson didn't see human lives as having any inherent value. Other people were meaningless to him. Manson had an interesting connection to another group that's frequently called a cult, Scientology. He listed his religion as Scientology in 1961 and had completed 150 hours of Scientology's auditing process. His right-hand man, a man called Bruce M. Davis, had worked at the Scientology headquarters in London. And you might be expecting Scientology to come up in one of these episodes. Not so. 
it's not that I don't think that they engage in cult-like activities. It's that I think that what they are now is even more sinister than a cult. To call them a cult or a pyramid scheme, both of which they have elements of, would actually undersell them. So, what are we left with now that we've taken a look at the man behind the murders? A paranoid schizophrenic with delusions of grandeur and a penchant for convincing others to inflict unbelievable suffering for his own aims. In the TV show Mindhunter, there's a scene where the titular investigators meet Charles Manson, and he goes off pontificating about how corrupt society is and he's a dark reflection of them, and they just refute him point blank. They say, no, you're just mad. All your philosophizing and equivocating is you convincing yourself that there was some righteousness behind what you did. Do I think Charles Manson really believed in Helter Skelter? As much as he believed in anything, I suppose. Manson was a man who would say anything that you wanted to hear, and could change his opinions and plans on a dime. There sort of wasn't anything behind him. In quite a horrifying way, I think he was actually rather surface level. He died in 2017, and with him died the Manson family. Unlike some of the other groups we'll cover this season, his cult was almost entirely focused around his specific force of personality. There are some groups today that claim descent from Manson, but they're principally based in other ideologies. For instance, the neo-Nazi terrorist group Atomwaffen Division claim to have been inspired by Manson, and other groups related to them claim that too. But what they tap into for their evil isn't purely based of the character of Manson, it's based on white supremacy. That's one of the reasons that this case is so important in the history of cults. Manson created the idea of the charismatic leader. During his trial, the question was raised as to whether he should actually be charged with murder in the first degree, since he hadn't actually killed anyone himself. In the end, he was. His control over his followers was deemed so great that it was as though he had done it with his own hand. As long as Manson was alive, he still had to hold on people. Many would try to defend him over the years. Some brought him gifts and sang his praises and listened to the music he made. I haven't listened to it. I don't really want to. What's to be gained there? Manson's not gaining any new followers in droves, but Lynette Squeaky From, one of the original family members, said in 2019, two years after Manson's death, quote, Was I in love with the Charlie? Yeah. I still am. What lessons can we learn about cults from the Manson family? Well, they're important in the history of cults because for the first time, in a big way, a group that wasn't explicitly politically motivated cells or activists, or that had any kind of realistic agenda, committed acts of murder in that kind of way. Were they the first cult to carry out violence? No, not really. Although their depiction in Indiana Jones is nothing less than an Orientalist fantasy, the Thuggy cult was a real thing in India, though they operated more like a criminal syndicate than a cult as we'd see them today. But the Manson family demonstrated the value to a cult of a charismatic leader. And again, we aren't talking about standard charisma here, we're talking about the ability to get people to do what you tell them. As we'll see further down the line, cults often don't have one leader. This one did, however. Tex still bent the knee to Charlie for as much power as he himself had over lower-ranking members of the family. Who did he target? The Manson family was a product of its time, I feel. This is why I don't really buy into the idea that Helter Skelter was a genuine aim for Manson. I think it was to an extent culturally influenced. Let me explain. 
I think if Manson had grown up in the 80s rather than the 40s or 50s, his vision of a coming conflict would have been based around the waning days of the Cold War or Reagan-era capitalist excesses. But he grew up in the time with the civil rights movement, at a time when people were starting to use psychedelic drugs to expand their minds. The family formed in the summer of love, after all, and indeed, they made frequent use of LSD and hallucinogens. So Manson targeted impressionable young people, mostly women, who wanted some escape in a time when traditional gender roles were under a lot of pressure. In the 60s, women started to own their sexuality more, free love and all that jazz. Manson capitalized on this, and whilst he outwardly praised their liberation, he was actually using that idea to control them. Many of the women who joined the family came from middle-class backgrounds. Manson's wild, hippie-style communal life offered an escape from the suburban, button-down life exemplified by the Stepford-esque 50s vision of white picket fences. Take Lynette Fromm from earlier. In 1967, she dropped out of university and left for Venice Beach. Her parents had thrown her out of the house and she was suffering from depression. Then Charles Manson comes along and says to her, Your parents threw you out, didn't they? Now she thought he was a psychic, but really he was just good at reading his marks. She would be the second member of the Manson family. He offered her a place to live, a meaningful existence after her whole world had fallen apart. And then he used her. Her nickname, Squeaky was from her squealing when the near-blind George Spahn would pinch her during sex. Remember how I mentioned Manson used his female followers as currency to pay rent for the ranch? Fromm would end up serving 34 years in federal prison after attempting to assassinate President Gerald Ford in 1975. She's currently on parole, as of 2009. By keeping the beliefs of his family nebulous and relatively amorphous until Helter Skelter, he never had to commit to any single idea, just vague counterculture notions that would appease people. He mingled with the upper crust of Hollywood, who he also decried in the same breath as being excessive and materialistic. He did draw on Christian philosophy. He presented himself as a Christ figure, frequently drawing that comparison himself. Remember that stupid uh, anagram name, Charles Will is man's son? There. His followers were his disciples, his enemies were the Romans. In that sense, it didn't matter what they did in life, as their afterlife would be assured through his deeds. He also, in some senses, presented himself as Satan. This may sound counterintuitive, but his philosophy was taken basically right from a group called the Process Church of Final Judgment. Their belief was that, at the end of the world, Satan and Jesus would reconcile and become as one. How does a guy who assaulted people in prison, led a life of crime and facilitated murders see himself as the reincarnation of Jesus? Well, because he was insane. As not to cast aspersions on people afflicted thusly, more to explain it. His version of reality was his own. He didn't live in the same world as everyone else. So were his actions predetermined? That's an important question to ask, because it helps us prepare for the future Charles Mansons, the Charles Mansons of tomorrow. Some would say yes, whether or not he was born with his mental health issues, his home environment was the perfect recipe for creating a serial recidivist. Coupled with the terrible US prison system that practically encouraged people to become self-serving and manipulative, he cultivated his worst qualities in that environment. Some people can change themselves, and some people need others to help them change. But at what point is someone beyond changing, if ever? Manson never showed remorse for what he'd done, the lives he'd taken and those he'd irrevocably ruined. People tried to make him see remorse, but nobody could succeed. Was it in his nature to be like that? You'd like to think not. If it was in his nature, 
Is it right to judge him for acting in his nature? I'm actually playing devil's advocate for asking that, but it's important to ask, because can we stop the people themselves? Later on in this season, we'll be looking at whether or not we can help those ensnared by cults. But in this instance, we're asking, can we stop them before they even form? Can we identify people who may be cult leaders? Well, you tell me. Donald Trump, President of the United States, as of recording this for less than a week left, said that he could shoot a man on Fifth Avenue and his supporters would cheer for him. This seems to be true. 80% of Republicans at time of recording believe the president's claims that the election was rigged against him, despite the fact that the president has lost every single lawsuit to try and prove that due to a lack of actual evidence to support those claims. He has no evidence. Yet people support his ideas even when confronted with the fact that his claims are patently false. Believe me, even in the face of conflicting evidence. Sure doesn't sound rational to me. But when people call him a cult leader, the charge is dismissed. He's not a cult leader, he's just a politician. Can't people be both? Now, some of you listeners out there might be annoyed at the political turn this season seems to be taking. Some might say, American Horror Story did it first. Well, I haven't seen that show. But others might say something along the lines of, stick to history. I liked it when your podcast was just about mysteries in history. Goddamn libs making everything political. But especially the mysteries of history are political. First off, my undergrad degree is in international relations and political science. You don't need one of those to talk about politics, but it helps. But Patreon backers will remember my episode on Great Zimbabwe and how the Rhodesian government actively suppressed information about the archaeological findings for political reasons. Or take the reasons that my old favourite the Franklin Expedition took so long to uncover. Victorian British society wasn't ready to accept evidence presented by people they saw as uncivilised, no matter how true it was. So all of our mysteries are to some extent political, because history is political and the way we study it is political. Nobody ever tells an unbiased telling of history because history is a story told and stories are personal. Those who say that they don't let politics affect their personal lives live in ivory towers of privilege where the political doesn't affect them. If your ideal world is one where everyone is always apolitical and you never have to think about big questions with unsettling answers, then you become complicit in whatever happens next through your inaction. Vigilance, Mr. Worf. It is the price we must continue to pay. Captain Picard said that in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called The Drumhead, about persecution of people by those with the charisma to get people on their side and abuse their trust for evil ends. In the episode, Worf's preconceptions about Romulans allow him to be manipulated by a space Nazi with a dark agenda. It's only when Captain Picard shows him how he's being manipulated that he's able to see the agenda beneath her honeyed words. The episode is also about judging people for things they can't control and the dangers of witch hunts in kangaroo courts, but there's the bit that's relevant to us. Charles Manson was able to recruit people to his evil causes, not because they themselves were evil, but because he positioned himself as good and gave them evidence to think that he was. He took people in off the streets, gave them an identity, and then abused their trust and made them do awful things. But because he'd been so kind, how could he be the bad guy? That's the lesson to take away from this. I think. We can't necessarily predict who will be the next Charles Manson because the people who will be swayed by him, they won't look like the next Charles Manson. Manson simply adopting the trappings of the time to make himself as palatable as possible. Hippie lifestyles and pseudo-philosophies. The next Charles Manson will be appealing to a modern audience, whoever that audience is. A lot of older generations are being roped into conspiracy theories with promises of returns to the good old days. It's whatever works 
really. So ultimately, that's the lesson about cults that I think we take away from this episode in the story of the Manson family. They can come from anywhere and become anything and adopt any form that is needed. They often have a charismatic leader, not always just one, but that leader's important quality is their charisma. Not even really their ideals or their beliefs or their passions, it's their ability to convince people to believe them and to follow them, whatever those beliefs are. Then, once they've got them ensnared and wrapped around their little finger, they can change those beliefs to whatever they actually want to push, whatever agenda they want to follow. And the people following them will follow them, because they're already sunk cost, as it were. But that'll do it for this episode, as we close the book, for now at least, on the Manson family. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded and produced by me, Ashley Styles. It was hosted by Wizard Studios, and music was from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod, and support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month by looking for Demystified Podcast on Patreon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.